Hello and welcome back to The Days That Follow. My name is Yana Firestone. If you're joining me for the first time, a super big welcome to you. I'm really happy to have you here and I can't believe it, but we're already up to episode four and this week we have someone really special who I will get to in a minute, but I just wanted to say again a big thank you to everybody who's been listening to the show and for giving me your feedback. I love hearing from you. So please make sure if the interview moves you in any way and you feel like sharing something with me or you'd like to have something shared on one of these episodes, you can email me directly at the days that follow pod at gmail.com or find me on either of my podcasts at The Days That Follow on Insta or at The Curious Life Podcast. I will have new episodes of The Curious Life coming soon, but for now I'm just focusing on The Days That Follow for the next little while. So I know you're going to love this episode. I had the absolute privilege of talking with Lottie Bowser all the way from Portugal. And she has been through things that no young person should have to go through. And we will dive into that in a minute. But before we do, I wanted to answer another question, which I thought was an important one. This was messaged to me on Instagram and they asked to remain anonymous. So I won't share who it's from, but the question followed a little bit of an interaction that we'd had where this person was just explaining the grief that they'd been through they're in the middle of something pretty big at the moment and she said to me that sometimes she feels like she can't even get out of bed and that it sort of feels like what's the point i completely remember that feeling there are definitely days when grief can feel so real and so raw and so consuming that it can feel like there is no point getting up out of bed or trying to get on with things because the worst thing has already happened and the pain is so immense. But what followed that was a question about how you know when you might need some therapy or when it might be helpful to go and seek therapeutic support. I guess the answer to that is it is obviously different for everybody. There are some people that really benefit from that early intervention. So seeing somebody in those early days when you're in crisis mode to help kind of stabilize you through what is a completely destabilizing experience. But for others, that's not very helpful. You just might need to give it a bit of time and then you can have a chat with somebody that feels like they might be the right fit. I always encourage people to go and seek therapeutic support because it just makes such a difference talking to somebody who's completely removed from the situation. So when you're talking with your friends and you're talking with your family, they will always have, you would hope, your best interests at heart. And they come with a set of biases that just don't exist with a therapist. So ideally, you want to find someone that's not in any way connected to you or your family and can talk you through what's happening. Obviously, if things are at a point where you aren't able to function and you're feeling like you really are worried about yourself, of course, reach out to Lifeline, reach out to Beyond Blue, reach out to your GP. Don't just sit in that on your own and wonder if you're okay and whether you're going to be okay, there are always people that will be able to pull you out of that and to help you move through that. And there's absolutely no shame in needing help. We all need help. The therapist in me needs help. The person going through grief myself needs help, just like everybody else. There's no one that 
can handle all of this stuff on their own. It's enormous. I think it is important to reflect and work out what is best for you. And sometimes that's going to look different to everybody else. So what I need and what you need is going to be different and neither of it is right or wrong. The same goes with therapists. You know, you're not always going to find the right person straight away. It's like any relationship. You want to make sure they're the right fit for you and that you get along, that you feel held, you feel safe, and you feel like you can share the things that are most important to you. I suppose on that note, I have shared on social media that I am opening up my private practice a little bit. So if you feel like I might be the right fit, let's have a chat. You can email me at my private practice email, which is firestonetherapies at gmail.com. Now, this episode with Lottie Bowser. I mean, she's really something special. She has been through the toughest fight, which ended in the loss of her beautiful partner, Ben. She and Ben were fighting for his life during the lockdowns in London at the height of COVID. And her story is incredibly moving and gripping. And to be honest, it's a little bit frightening to imagine yourself in her shoes. But Lottie doesn't get the luxury of squeezing her eyes closed and shaking it away. She lived it and now she writes and speaks about her experiences and advocates for those going through grief themselves. She's amazing. Her story is incredible. And through all of the intensity of her experiences and the trauma that she faced towards the end of Ben's life, she just remains this incredible light. She's warm. She's engaging. She's beautiful. She's so intelligent. She's so articulate. And I just think you're going to love this episode. So you can find Lottie online at Lottie Bowser, and I will put the link in the show notes. Have a listen, learn from Lottie, because there's so much we can all take away from this, how she's made meaning out of the most excruciatingly painful experiences is really something incredible. So enjoy this episode and I look forward to hearing from you guys once you've had a listen. Well, I am just so excited to be talking with you today. This is Really, I mean, again, I keep introducing people saying I'm excited to talk to them when the whole premise of this podcast is about like the worst thing that has happened to every single person (laughs) that I've spoken to. But Lottie, your story, it really, really struck a chord for me when I heard it. And, you know, I just had this feeling like I had to speak to you and I had to meet you and I had to hear your story because I think for one, it's meaningful for me in a lot of ways, but I think for so many people listening, it's just going to have so many layers of resonance and I just can't wait for more people to hear about it. So thank you for joining me today. Oh, Yana, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. It's weird, isn't it? There is this duality with grief. I found that some of the strongest connections I've made have actually been born from my losses, which is mm. crazy. Yeah. But there is that, I don't know, there is that sense of solidarity, you know, and like, a, oh, thank God yeah. someone gets it. Yes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm yeah. so happy to connect with you. I can't wait oh. to get over to Australia as well. Well, I can't wait for you to get here either. I mean, there's yeah. just so much to talk about. And I know we were talking off air already, you know, starting to get into the trenches. And I guess it must be almost like people that have served in wars, you know, they do just 
connect with each other when they meet Mm. because they've been through the same trauma and they understand all the myriad things that come along with that kind of experience. And I guess when you've been through loss at the magnitude that you have, there are probably a certain group of people that you will just connect with more because of the experience. Definitely. And I also think when you experience untimely loss, you know, loss that should have happened years before it actually did when you were so young. And Yana, I know you have firsthand experience of that. There is a real feeling of alienation. You feel very isolated in your experience because this is not the kind of shit that happens to people in their 20s or 30s, usually at least. Yeah. So I didn't feel like anyone understood around me. You know, so it was really important for me to seek out those connections with other men and women who'd also navigated big, big loss at a young age. Well, that's right. And for people that don't know your story, you lost your beautiful partner completely in an untimely and terrible way. It shouldn't have happened. We shouldn't be having this conversation today. You should be living your beautiful life with your beautiful Ben And Mm -hmm. instead, we're sort of left to pick up the lessons and the stories that have now become such a huge part of who you are and what your life means going forward. So I wonder, maybe we should start a little bit before all of this terrible stuff happened. And maybe you can tell me a little bit about your lovely Ben. Oh, I'd be delighted to. I think this is such a beautiful way that those of us who've lost people we love can keep them alive, you know, Mm -hmm. because they are still very much a part of us. There's a quote that people can die twice and I will butcher it, but it's something along the lines of people can die twice. Once is when they take their last breath. And the second time is when people that they left behind stop talking about them, right? So for me, it's been really important to Harry Ben with me. So thank you for giving me the chance to share Mm. a little bit of his magic with you. He was a magical human being. We met when I was 24. I'm 32 now. He was six, seven years older than me. And it was just instant. We met online. Our appetite for each other was insatiable from the get-go. We couldn't stop talking. We had our first date and I think we had three more dates that week. And within a month, we declared our love for each other on a dance floor. And a a few months after that, we were living together and we were just inseparable. It really felt as though we'd found our respective soulmates in each other. And we spent six beautiful years together. The last year and a half of those years were incredibly difficult, but it was almost too good to be true, Yana. And I remember actually feeling that a lot, you know, like this is beyond my wildest dreams. We were building an incredible life together. Ben was a music agent. I was teaching yoga uh, for a number of years in London and it was just so full and incredible. And the bubble burst four and a half years in, we were actually, we just left Glastonbury Festival, which is a huge festival in the UK. You'll have to get over for it one Mm. time. We were a few days into like nursing our post-festival hangovers and he'd been fast-tracked through a diagnostic process a couple of weeks beforehand because I found a lump between his shoulder blade and his spine a few months earlier. Now, Ben was, I think, 30, 34 
and a half at the time. So we didn't think anything of it. He was really fit, really healthy. He was a martial artist, did a lot of sports, led a, a healthy lifestyle. So we just assumed that perhaps it was a bit of fatty tissue or perhaps some muscle fibers that hadn't repaired themselves properly. And when it didn't go away, we thought mm, we better get that checked out just mm. as an insurance policy, just to put our minds at ease. And he was diagnosed with a really rare type of soft tissue sarcoma, which I'd never heard of before. Mm. It was called a malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor or MPNST for short. And it was stage three by that point, which isn't great. And because the cancer was so rare, it meant that there weren't a lot of treatment options available that had been researched thoroughly. The best course of action was surgery and radiotherapy. And the radiotherapy was supposed to be a preventative measure that would see the cancer kept at bay for another 10 years, best case scenario. He went through that process that summer. We finished that year. So this was 2019 on a high in Australia. We just got engaged and we thought, fuck, we can put all of that behind us now. We're going to look back at that year and just think that was crazy. Do you remember the summer that you had cancer? And we thought that that was it. And then, of course, three months later, our worlds were turned upside down. Just that period of time in itself is enormous to have gone through. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that thinking, oh, it's nothing. We all come across little things in our bodies and little niggles and think, oh, look, I'll just get it checked out. I'm sure it's nothing. And then to be hit with that completely unexpected news, launched straight into a plan of attack and recovery and all of that, and to have held your breath and been able to let it go and think, oh, we made it. Like, We've mm. gotten through the worst of it and to cap it all off with that beautiful engagement and the beginning of your lives together. That period in itself, you could have written a book about and mm. it would have been enormous. How did you guys transition through that relief and that we're planning for the rest of our lives here to that sudden next chapter that came rushing through so quickly? During Ben's first diagnosis, I was definitely under the delusion of control. And I think perhaps it was my coping mechanism. Looking back, it was a way to deal with it. I didn't want to contemplate the worst case scenario. And this was Ben. He was vibrant. He was strong. He was healthy. We went into it with a positive mindset. We'd read all the books. We listened to all the podcasts about the power of the mind and we really threw the kitchen sink at it. And so for me, it was just unquestionable that he would survive. I didn't allow myself to go there. And I really did think that the end of radiotherapy would be the end of this nightmare. So we got engaged and we went into 2020 on a high, of course, and began planning for our wedding. And three months into 2020, of course, COVID-19 swept around the world, right? And the UK went into lockdown in March. We celebrated Ben's 36th birthday in lockdown together, just in our flat, the two of us in Finsbury Park in London. And the following day, we had a follow-up appointment at his hospital, at the oncology hospital. And again, I didn't think anything of it. You know, he'd only finished radiotherapy three months ago, for fuck's sake. Mm. And we were told... This should, you know, you should be okay for a few years at the very least. 
And so when Ben was called in for another scan at that appointment, that's when the anxiety really started to take hold. And I thought, hmm, something isn't right here. Why do they want him to go in for a second scan? I remember we were waiting in that waiting room to be called in to discuss the results for about 30 minutes. And it was agonizing. I can actually feel my body going back there. It's a very Mm. visceral experience. That's when we received the news that the cancer had spread to his lungs. There were several tumors, several dots in the lungs. And the doctor said, and at the time I hated this, but now in retrospect, I appreciated his honesty. This will kill you. This will kill you. We don't know when, but you will not survive this. It is incurable. We can try and prolong your life. I can't tell you how long you have. It could be a year. It could be 10. You know, he had patients who were thriving with the disease. But as you can imagine, hearing that news, I remember my entire world just going black and my Mm. body was shaking. I I couldn't control it. The adrenaline was just coursing through my, my veins. I was terrified. I was gripped by terror and... We drove home from that appointment in tears and then basically had to shield Ben from the world around him because he'd gone from, you know, a a cancer survivor to suddenly a stage four terminally ill, vulnerable patient. Oh my God. It's the worst nightmare Mm. conversation, you know, Mm. and I'm not sure how I would receive that news from a doctor. How did Ben take that? I mean, that in itself is an enormous grief, you know, to come Mm. to terms with that you've been Mm. given this diagnosis and it's going to loom over you now in a completely unknown, uncertain way. I mean, how did he process that? I can see his face now. He was sat to the left of me and he just went, fuck. And he, I think, laughed with nervousness. You know, it was just so unbelievable that we'd arrived here. I think Ben always had a fear of it coming back. And again, it's only in hindsight that you piece things together, right? As I said, I was very much in denial. I really felt that we could control the outcome with, you know, the right tools, the right mindset. But um, it was... It was awful. It was it was utterly awful. And I think as a caregiver, you want to do everything you possibly can in your power to help your loved one, but you are kind of helpless. You are kind of powerless. And as the months progressed and as the cancer continued to spread, despite all of the different things that we were throwing at it, we did everything, Yana. I mean, there was no stone left unturned. My entire life became learning about different cancer treatments, oncology consultations, trying to decipher medical papers and Mm. research and all that kind of stuff. Nothing was working. So we tried to hold on to as much hope as possible, but I could really feel that diminishing in him. And the treatment was so grueling as well. Anybody listening who has lost a loved one to a, a terminal illness, there are certain aspects of your person that die before they do. It's almost like the light flickers, you know, before it burns out, it gets more dim. And it's it's just 
there are no words, you know, to describe the agony of that, of watching the person you love most go through that. Yeah, nothing we did helped. But all you have is hope. Right up until his last breath, I just had to continue believing that he could survive because the other option was just unimaginable. As I'm listening to this story, and I know some of this story already, but I have such a physical reaction listening to it. Like I think because having been through a lot of loss in my life, I'm forever in this state of anxiety about going through it again and almost Mm. in anticipation, like waiting, when's the next terrible thing going to happen? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be someone I love? You know, what's wrong? Is everything all right? What is that? You know, this constant Mm. hypervigilance. I can sort of feel it in my body is that, you know, desperation that you both would have been feeling and obviously much more for you because you're on the outside of his body watching it happen and just wishing you could do anything to change Mm. it. So in that moment, you're already in grief. You know, even though you're holding on to hope, your entire life has transformed. Every single part of your life is different. Mm -hmm. Did you have any time in those moments to kind of take stock of what was happening? How were you looking after yourself, moving Mm. through it, managing it, processing it? Honestly, I have no idea. Mm. So what makes, what made the situation so unprecedented was that we were navigating the terminal illness at the height of the global pandemic. So even when some of the lockdowns were lifted throughout that summer, so there were eight months between Ben's terminal diagnosis and his death, We couldn't go outside. We couldn't socialize with our friends. Now they say that it takes a village to raise a baby. It takes a village to care for somebody navigating a chronic or terminal illness. But it was just us. It was just Ben and I. We could not risk anybody coming in to our space and potentially infecting him. So that was an impossible weight to carry. Caregiving is so incredibly hard all the while you're trying to upkeep a home, advocate for your person. So it's not just the caregiving in terms of, you know, the meal prep, the cleaning, the bathing, administering medicine and and cheerleading and comforting because Ben was also going through his own process and, and suffering a lot physically and mentally, trying to somehow manage your own shit you know, Mm. process your own emotions and recuperate from the onslaught of trauma and the exhaustion that you'd be feeling around the clock. There was no respite. Mm. And I remember feeling as though I was just constantly struggling to keep my head above water, you know, and there's no option but to keep going. You Mm. cannot stop because every day almost feels like a life or death situation. Will there be an emergency? Will his temperature spike? Will we have to go to A&E? Will he throw up? Like, will he have an adverse reaction? How will he he take to the chemotherapy? What's the cancer doing right now? Is it growing? Is anything working? It was just constant. And as I said, there's no other option. You've just got to really dig deep and keep Mm -hmm. going. And I don't think that I have, even now, two and a bit years on, really come to terms with and processed that experience in and of itself, let alone Ben's death. 
that's where losing somebody from an illness of some kind, there's that added layer of not only dealing with the death itself, but also all of the stuff that came before. A hundred percent. And in a non-COVID world, you would have had respite. You would have had other people, his family, his friends who could have come in and sat with him for an hour so you could go for a walk or go to therapy or get some fresh air, whatever. And Mm. you were just 24-7 in that role with no way out. I mean, I just, Mm. I, you know, when I think back to our lockdown days, I think we were the most lockdown city in the world here in Melbourne. And Mm. we had the opportunity still to leave the house and walk around within five kilometers of our home. We could get fresh air. We could go to the shop. We could do those things. You couldn't do any of those things. And Mm. you had your beautiful person in such a terrible state to deal Mm. with and to love and to be with throughout that time. I just can't even imagine Mm. it. It's tragic because it also means that the last eight months of Ben's life were spent completely isolated from his Mm. friends and family. I think his mum maybe saw him twice in that time. And of course, it's, I mean, it's not exactly fun, is it? (laughs) You're stuck at home and it's not quality time. My story is not unique. You know, there's millions of people around the world who've gone through similar things, who didn't get a chance to be with their loved ones as they were dying, Mm. who didn't get to have a proper send off, you know, it's just so messed up. And we're not, there's been no accountability or no conversation around the mental, emotional impact of all of that. You know, the rhetoric has very much been focused on economic recovery. (laughs) It's like, what about all the other stuff? Yeah, I I saw an article the other day from the UK saying that they'd done some studies and there was no mental health impact post COVID. And I mean, I as a ther- oh, was it that, that where I saw it yeah, on your page? Sh- oh my God. As a therapist, I can tell you that is 100% unequivocally bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. just spin. And it's so, it's so not true. And people are so not okay. And those are just people that have lived locked up lives. Those aren't even necessarily people that have been through grief and loss and suffered in the way that you and Ben did. It's unbelievable. Well, and guess what? The study was only looking at, so it was a roundup of a number of different studies measuring, you know, changes in mental health throughout the pandemic in quote marks, but actually those studies were taken in the first six months of that first year. So from January, 2020 through to June, I'm like, hang on a sec. Our lockdown lasted well into spring 2021. Mm -hmm. So you're not accounting for almost a year's worth of of damage. Exactly. That's absolutely crazy. I mean, my years are all blurred because of that time, but all of 20, we we spent the majority in lockdown, majority of 21. It was even in 22. Am I wrong? I can't, I think, I feel like we were having lockdowns again in 22. I was pregnant. That's right. In 2022, I didn't see my friends the entire pregnancy, you know? Mm. So like that's three years of completely interrupted life and that collective grief of life interruption, mental health disruption is Mm -hmm. absolutely going to be seen for years to come. Definitely. I don't think we can even fathom the impact that it's had. We won't really understand it until a few years have passed. 
It's yeah, crazy. Exactly. Oh, it's just so dangerous putting that stuff out there. I mean, what does that do to the people that who just like so many of us really did struggle in that time and are mm. not okay and are suffering with anxiety and social difficulties and all the kids that missed out on so much school and are now just adjusting for the first time to being with other people. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> oh, we can lot. get, I, yeah, I feel passionate about this subject. Yeah. It's so crazy. This episode is brought to you by the sneaky treat company, Melbourne, decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalized note to send along with your gift. The sneaky treat code com you know you want to I guess getting back to your story so you guys were at home for all of that mm. time but at some point there was a decision to head to Mexico so can you talk us a little bit through some of that yeah so this was now at the end of summer 2020 we had an NHS appointment after Ben's chemotherapy after his last two chemotherapy cycles and that's where we basically sort of came to the end of the road. They said, there's nothing that can be done now. The cancer has been spreading despite the chemo treatment. You need to start making arrangements. In other words, get your affairs in order. The oncologist said, if there's anything you want to do, like get married, go and do it. And I think they handed me leaflets on hospices and end of life care. And I just wanted to smash their heads against the wall and say, mm. fuck you and fuck that. There's no way. There's no way. And again, in hindsight, I was in denial, right? Mm. I did not want to imagine a future without the person I knew I couldn't live without. It was mm. unfathomable to me. So again, I got on the computer. I spent a sleepless night researching and I came across a treatment center in Tijuana, which is the most dangerous city in the world and has been voted that for the last couple of years. But you just think, well, sod it. You know, this is this is the last option. We're going to go for it. Now, they'd had a lot of success treating end stage cancers, all kinds of rare cancers like Ben's. And we'd been very fortunate enough to raise quite a lot of money to explore alternative treatment pathways that weren't available on the NHS through fundraising efforts, social media, that kind of thing. So I booked his flights to leave, I think, later that week. Was it later that week? No, it was in a couple of weeks time because Ben really wanted to go to Ibiza first. Mm. Ibiza was our special place. He spent a lot of time there as a teenager and into his 20s and then as a music agent as well. It's a real hub for the electronic music industry. So we had a beautiful week in Ibiza together. And I'm so glad that we did that because really that was the only respite he had. And I remember him saying, I feel like I've done more healing here in a week than I have done over the last six, seven months of treatment. Wow. His family came, we got to create some really beautiful memories. And then from there, we flew to Mexico and he went into a really grueling treatment program. Yeah, it was there that, everything continued going downhill. We had a little spike. So I think it was maybe three or four weeks in, he was starting to feel better. He was starting to look better. We had a scan to assess his progress and the treatment was working. It was slowing down the tumor growth. I think it had actually halted the, the tumor growth with some of the tumors. 
And finally, we had hope. And I remember we just collapsed onto the bed in tears, Mm -hmm. thinking, oh my God, the future that we'd planned for is now within reach. Like, this is it. We're going to get through this together. And less than a week later, he began to feel unwell. And so did I. We were sweating a lot at night. We had sore throats. We were coughing. And um, his condition got quite bad. Like his coughing got quite bad. Obviously, with the cancer being in his lungs, we thought it was best for him to just be kept an eye on overnight uh, in the cancer center. And it's so weird, Yana, recounting it because it really was in the space of 24 hours, maybe even less than that everything just unraveled. We, I think I had a takeaway that evening because he wasn't feeling well and he was feeling a bit anxious about everything. I decided to stay with him that night. I didn't get a wink of sleep. At this point, Ben had to have help with breathing. So he was wearing an oxygen mask and he was sat upright because when he lay back down, the coughing would start again. So he was sat upright in a chair that entire evening and he had an oximeter device on his index finger just to measure his oxygen saturation levels. Now, obviously, you know, I'm I'm not a medical professional. I don't have a clue what the fuck's going on, but I'm just trying to advocate for him as best as I can, all the while dealing with my anxiety and my stress and my exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Bearing in mind this is seven months in now. And it like later that that night, I think it was in the early hours of the morning, the his oxygen saturation levels just kept going down and down. And the doctors had changed for the night shift. So the new doctors that had come in didn't have any knowledge of Ben's case, but I could sense that something was wrong. You know, he was sweating a lot. He was struggling to breathe. When the night doctors were then switched and his doctors came back in for the morning shift, that's when everything just seemed to descend into chaos. Slowly, the O2 saturation levels just kept on dropping, dropping, dropping. And I could see the panic in the doctor's faces. Now, this is a cancer center. This is an alternative treatment center. You know, this was now beyond their remit. And it was an emergency, basically. Ben was really struggling. They said, you know, you need to get him to hospital as soon as possible. And yeah, the room is just just madness. People are rushing in now. Everyone's speaking Spanish. Ben's becoming more and more distressed. He can't breathe really at this point. He can't communicate with me. And we called an ambulance and I'm so grateful that we had access to funds because in order for him to be received, bearing in mind, you can't travel with medical insurance as a terminally ill patient. Mm In order for him to be admitted to this hospital, we needed to pay upfront 10,000 US dollars. So his wallet's in his trousers. I remember fumbling, you know, all the while he's in distress. He doesn't know what's going on. I tried to pull out his wallet, grab his card. Fortunately, I know the fucking pin. Mm. So when the, um, when the paramedics came, I, you know, I paid, I, I, I paid the deposit and he was put onto a stretcher hurled out of the cancer center into the back of the ambulance and we just flew across the city with the sirens blaring and you know this took place within the space of half an hour so I I I have no idea what's going on at this point you know as far as I was concerned Ben was okay like we'd you know we'd seen progress he was feeling better in himself 
So it all descended, you know, within the space of a day. And when we got to the hospital, he was rushed through the doors and I tried to follow, but they stopped me from entering. Mm -hmm. So I was physically held back all the while kind of, you know, crying and screaming and confused. Just what is going on? What's happening? I need to be with him. And I remember hearing him shout my name and he was sort of bolt upright on the stretcher. By this point, the O2 sat levels I could see were flashing red. So they had dropped below 40%. Now, to just give you an idea, Yana, of how critical that is, anything below 90 is considered extremely serious. So he was admitted, and I just remember collapsing onto the floor thinking, what the fuck is happening? Everyone's speaking Spanish. I don't understand what's going on. He was intubated straight away. So straight away, he was put on, on life support. He was that critical. So that was the last I saw of him conscious. And yeah, it's just crazy telling that story, you know. The chaos and the distress and all of that is coming through so clearly as you're telling what happened. And I know that you're obviously putting that hindsight and rational kind of lens on it where you're able to piece together each step that happened. But I imagine at the time it just would have been a complete hurricane of chaos. And what do you actually do at that point? You know, you're on the floor, you're in a different country, you don't speak the language, you don't have any support, you don't have your family, you don't have a friend you can just turn to and collapse and cry with and say, what Mm. do we do next? It's just you, Mm. you know. Just me. And I have no, at this point, I don't even know where I am in the city, you know, and I just had to find my way back to the hotel, you know, order an Uber, hope that it would get me there safely and then wait and just try to try to get through each moment, not knowing what had just happened. And it was only after his intubation that we were told both of us actually had COVID. The the, the doctor said that I, I had to go and get tested because they thought that it was perhaps a, a tumor that had ruptured in his chest that was then you know, inhibiting his his capacity to breathe properly or COVID. And we were in a cancer bubble, right? COVID was the last thing on our minds. And I think maybe we thought that we were safe being in this little bubble of the cancer center. All we were doing was walking from the hotel to the cancer center, back to the hotel again, day in, day out, you know? So Mm. it was shocking. It was really, really shocking. And of course, I then had to go into quarantine in the hotel that we were staying in for 14 days while he was Mm. in ICU. And um, he was in ICU for 24 days before he died. And every day was a nightmare, as you can imagine. I had one phone call a day from the doctors. And sometimes there would be 30 hours that passed between phone calls, you know, during which you you were just losing your mind, not least of all because you're, you know, in isolation alone, but also because you're wondering what is happening, Mm -hmm. wanting that phone call, but also feeling terrified by the prospect that they might have the worst news to deliver. And of course that did happen on the 14th of November. Every day then would oscillate between critical to stable, critical to stable. It was so complicated. You know, he, not only did he have cancer, but by the time he was admitted, he'd already contracted a super infection on top of COVID. Wow. So he had pneumonia and the longer you spend on a mechanical ventilator, the more likely you are to develop 
complications. So there were all kinds of things happening. Eventually it was sepsis and kidney failure that killed him. Mm. Wow. So you're in isolation, you're sick as well, and you're alone. How After the 14 days, were you still in, in isolation at that point or were you able to go and see him? I had one of my best friends come out to be with me, which was a real lifesaver. Because Ben's situation was so exceptional, because he was critical, they made allowances for family members for really critical patients. So I was able to go in and see him twice within mm. those 24 days. And it's not really the kind of place you want to hang around in too long, mm. you know? The best way I can describe it is it's like a, a sci-fi meets horror film, like an end of days scenario. And bearing in mind, you're not just wearing a mask, you were wearing the full hazmat suit, the goggles, the gloves, sealed to your sleeves with sellotape. There's doctors walking around in gas masks. And the whole thing is just, it's just like, uh, it's almost indescribable. I don't really have words for it. I think I must have spent about an hour in there in total, like half an hour each time. Yeah, it's just a really horrific experience, you know, seeing your loved one like that. The only consolation in all of this, Yana, is that Ben was asleep, mm. you know, and that he didn't have a sense of what was happening. There were flickers of life. There were moments where he he did open his eyes. I wasn't there for that. Of course, I was tormented by thoughts of well, what was his experience of that? Mm. You know, was he was he scared? Was he in pain? What was he thinking and feeling? Mm. But they really kept him heavily sedated. And I'm just glad that he wouldn't have had much of a sense of what was happening. I think one thing that we do when we lose somebody, we rehash the events over and over, right? We ask ourselves, what could we have done differently? How could we have prevented their deaths? It's almost like Imogen from the Good Morning podcast described it as a, as a psychological autopsy, right? You mm. need to understand how you got from them being alive to them dead. Yeah. And so that was really a, a part of my process needing to understand you know, how, how it all happened. And I take solace in the fact that Ben wouldn't have been aware. Even that morning, as things unfolded, because his O2 saturation levels were so low, he would have gone into hypoxia, which means total confusion, just yeah. not, not really with it. And I, I, I think it's only natural to try and scramble to make sense of it. And you know, I completely understand. I mean, I when I think back to my time in those early days after losing mum, it was a similar thing. Constant, even my dreams, I was just in this constant state of trying to resolve it and have a different outcome and different ending. You know, I'd be mm. running to the hospital and or getting to her just in time on, you know, all of these things that your brain does. And you're doing that while you're awake constantly your brain is going and going and the what if and the what if and could I and should I and beating yourself up for the things you did do and you didn't do and none of it helps none of it's healthy none of it makes you feel better none of it gets you anywhere do you think there was a specific 
marker in time where you were able to kind of let go of some of that and sort of come to a place of just, I hate the word acceptance because you never want to accept this, but just Mm. kind of being able to sit with, well, this is what happened. Mm, I think so. I think this ruminating over everything that happened carried on for months Yana, like months and months, I needed to try and understand how the fuck it ended with him dying because I was so sure that we could be that person that stood on stage, that Ben could be that person that stood stood on stage 10 years from now, giving a TED talk about how he'd overcome a stage four diagnosis. Mm. There are people that do it because we tried so many different things. It was just unbelievable that he'd Mm. died anyway. So my process, I spent a lot of time rehashing everything, replaying conversations, talking about those conversations with my mum and stepdad, who I then spent the next four months in lockdown with after he died. I reread all the emails. I really had to piece together what had happened. And every time, no matter which way I turned, looking at all the different scenarios, the, the routes that we could have gone down, not doing surgery, exploring mm. the protocol of off-label supplements and, and medicine instead, I always arrived at the same conclusion that Ben probably would have died anyway, right? His disease was just that rare, that aggressive. The statistics really aren't great for MPNST. You know, you your chances of survival beyond the five-year mark are slim to none, sadly. So that actually really helped me because it enabled me to relinquish some of my guilt as his primary and only caregiver. At times, I really did feel as though his survival was up to me and what I did. I think that that actually, that was helpful for me. It was helpful for me to go back into it all and to to understand what had happened and to arrive at the conclusion of him dying, regardless as to what we did every time. With time, that rumination just began to soften. I do think you reach a place of acceptance. And I'm the same as you. I don't love that word Mm. because it implies that we're okay with it, but it's not that. (laughs) It's really not that. It will never be okay. It will never be okay that your mum died when you were 21. What makes death so unparalleled is that it is permanent, right? There's nothing that can be done to change it. So I think the sooner you are able to accept that fact that there's nothing that can be done other than to try and live with it somehow, the better. And it's a process. It's yeah. a fucking process. As you know, it's really not easy. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think in time it did soften. And I don't, of course, you know, every so often I think, my God, what what if things were different? But yeah, I don't, I don't agonize over that so much anymore. That's a relief to hear because I just know how awful that space is to be in. Some people never get out of that place. It's Mm. it's awful. And the guilt that comes along with any kind of debt doesn't matter what the circumstances are. There's guilt 100% of the time when somebody we love dies because we always think we could have done something or we, we shouldn't have said that or we wish we'd said that or we wish we'd whatever it is. It's it's just with every single loss. And it's just one of those things that we do to beat ourselves up. We can just be so cruel to ourselves. Like we're suffering Mm -hmm. enough. Why do we continue to inflict this suffering on ourselves? 
our brains are just really nuts things, aren't they? I mean, the things that they do. Yeah, totally, totally. And I think it's really important to be as kind to yourself as you possibly can be because the weight that you carry when navigating a profound loss like this is just it's it's insurmountable really you know Mm. it's it's more than anybody should have to deal with so it's just so important but it is a process you know it takes time and it also takes your active participation you know I do Mm. think that you're absolutely not responsible for what happened, but we do have a degree of like personal accountability as to how we move forwards with it. Right. And I really tried to support myself. I, I worked hard at my, my healing. It doesn't just happen. No, no. no. And I think actually when you don't I like that that phrase that you used about taking active participation in your healing because when you're just taking a passive approach, I think it goes on for longer. Of course, you have good days. doesn't mean you're going to be absolutely distressed and terrible and at the depths of your pain the whole time if you don't do anything about it. But actively taking steps to try and do something about it just gives you those tools and and gives you those better days a little bit more quickly. So can you think back to some of the things that you were doing to start to move through it? Well, I think, as I said, all of the ruminating, all of the replaying, the rehashing, reflecting, arriving at that conclusion that actually this would have always been the outcome definitely helped me to accept what had happened to some degree. Also just recognizing the permanence of it, that no matter how much I resisted, no matter how much I fought my reality, I couldn't bring Ben back Mm. and I couldn't end my life because of the pain, you know, as that would only transfer the pain onto those around me. I had to find a way to live, not for myself, perhaps at first, but for my loved ones. I think, Yana, cultivating my spiritual beliefs, really diving into all things spirituality and life after death and mediumship and the other side, really, really helped. I became almost obsessive in the weeks and months following Ben's death. I wanted to understand firstly what his experience of his death was like, because we were so connected, Mm. you know, and to understand where he'd gone, because the notion that he'd just ceased to exist, that he'd just vanished and he was gone forevermore was crushing. You know, it almost felt some days that I would die from the pain. Opening myself up to all of this stuff and entertaining the possibility that there is more beyond the death of the physical body was just so comforting. And I've had some really validating experiences with psychic mediums and with my own signs that I've asked Mm. for from Ben. That has been a massive tool. And I would really encourage anybody that has lost a loved one to just be curious to be open, to dive into it, to, you know, listen to a few podcasts, listen to other people recount their experiences of signs and connection with the other side. That's what a famous medium, Laura Lynn Jackson, refers to it as. I'm not religious, you know, I'm, it's not it's not heaven to me, although I think it's probably the same. You know, we just, we just call it different things depending on what beliefs we subscribe to. So that really, really helped. And then I think just Feeling the unfairness of it all and knowing how much Ben wanted to live, it really galvanized me into reaching for joy and being grateful for being alive when he wasn't, 
you know I think death can be a really profound teacher in that sense it certainly was for me it inspired me to live with more immediacy because I thought well fuck you know anything could happen at any point we just got engaged and less than a year later I was planning his funeral I should have been planning our wedding the knowing that we are impermanent that this is a very fleeting human experience I just wanted to live each day as best as I possibly could I love that it wasn't so much the tools it was more like yeah, not much by way of practical tools, more like the insights that I gained inspired yeah. me to move forwards. It's so interesting for so many people. And I thought I was just a weird one in my, let's even call it the first decade of my big grief experience. Because it wasn't just my mum. I actually lost so many people around that time. I mean, the entire top level of my generation of my family, the people that should in the natural order of things, grandparents and great aunts and uncles and a cousin and, you know, a friend. And there was just, it just was like endless, 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 endless grief and endless Mm. loss. And I too leaned heavily on the signs and the Definitely. I mean, I'd love to give a shout out to Elizabeth Muir, who is the psychic that I'm still in touch with today, who was was better than any therapist I've ever had. Every experience mm. with, with her was far better than any therapy I've ever had in my life. And mm-hmm. I know as a therapist, I should be saying, therapy is the best. <laughs> Go to the therapist. And there is a place for that. But I think when you're desperately seeking validation and clarity and some sort of reassurance that it doesn't just end and that they are still there and that things go on after us Mm -hmm. and our experience here that I mean that was just magnificent for me and still to this day when I've got stuff going on I'll check in with that side of the world and it's not that I'm necessarily looking for a message from my mum but I'm just looking for that that clarity and that reassurance I'm on the right path and that things are moving in the right direction. And if I happen to get a little message from mum, then that's just a little bonus. But I trust in that process of the universe and, and there being more than just us little people here on the planet thinking we know what we're doing. There's got to be. There's got yeah. to be. There's got to be. I mean, my I have such an unwavering, it's not even a belief, it's a knowing. I've had it validated back to me time and time again, not just through psychic mediumship and through my own experience of signs and, you know, communication, but also through plant medicines, psychedelics. It's, it's, you can't convince me otherwise now. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that I'm, you know, fairly level-headed, logical person. I I, I straddle both worlds, right? One foot in this world, one foot in Mm -hmm. that world. I made it as difficult as possible I used a different email address to book my appointments. I have a little platform online. You know, the story is out there for people to read about if they wanted to. How could she have for two and a half hours channeled Ben with Mm. all of his mannerisms, with all of his quirks, anecdotes, things that only him and I knew about, Mm. elements of his personality coming through, things that happened that only him and I knew about. Riddle me that. How do you explain it? For me, it's like, it's real. And it's been honestly probably the most healing thing. And that's not to say healing means, you know, I'm I'm totally cool with it. Mm. Like Ben died, it's fine. It'll never be okay. But 
then knowing that he is there and he is guiding me and we're still a team. And when I die, I'll see him again. And it's going to be a fucking beautiful reunion with him and my dad and everyone else that has died before me. It's amazing. It's such a beautiful notion. That's a a little gift that's come out of such terrible tragedy and losing your dad as well way too soon. You should not have had that happen, especially in such close proximity to losing Ben. And I don't know why these things happen. It always seems to be there's a compounding of the grief and complexities and layers that are added. It's never just a straightforward thing and just one person that we lose. It's always really, Mm. what's the next? Great. Okay. Just when I think I can't quite, it couldn't get any worse, then it's the next thing. So to be able to find some light and find some positivity out of all of this and take the lessons with you, I think is a bit of magic. And there are, Yana, and I'm sure you've been changed by your mother's death and all of your other losses in profound ways. Like there are gifts and I would have hated hearing that. Mm. And I don't think that unless you've walked this path or you've gone through something similar, you can really say that, you Mm. know, like platitudes really Mm. aren't helpful in a time (laughs) of pain and need. Look for the gift. So everything Mm. happens for a reason. I don't subscribe to that shit, but I do think, as I said, we have agency, you know, we have, we have control as to how we respond to these awful circumstances to varying degrees. Of course, not everyone has the capacity to look at these things this way, but yeah, it's, it's been such a profound experience in so many ways. Of course, you would wish, Ben, you would wish your dad back in a heartbeat and you would throw all the lessons away and say, you know, take them, give me my people. But as you say, sort of relinquishing that control aspect is a massive part of healing and one that I'm still not great at, just surrendering to the universe and surrendering to the knowledge that we can't control any of these Mm. things. So when we're trying to hang on so tightly to that notion of it's not fair and I want them back, we can feel all of that pain and feel the loss, but maybe there's another way of letting go of some of it so that we can let some of the healing in. And, And maybe that's a helpful thing for people who might be in the earlier parts of grief listening to this to take with them resistance is futile Mm. it's just it's pointless and in her book it's okay that you're not okay the psychotherapist and author megan divine talks about the difference between pain and suffering pain is inevitable you are going to be in pain as a result of your loss or whatever your trauma whatever it is that you've you've gone through but you can compound that by by ruminating by resisting That's suffering. And I think we do have a choice as to how much we suffer. That's a really important message. There are people in my own life I know that are still suffering from big losses and it's going to look different for everybody, sort of how you move away from suffering yeah, into just pain. It's all shit. It's all hard. There's no quick, easy way out of any of this. But um, yeah, and we don't bypass, you know, we don't bypass any of this. This is not to say that it's easy. It fucking ain't easy (laughs) at all. It's the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing. But yeah, 
got to try and find a way to live with it because you are still here and that is a gift. Mm. And I think the way that we honor our loved ones the most is by acknowledging that and embracing it and making today as good a day as we can within Mm. what feels possible. And that might just be reaching for little things that make us feel good. And it's okay to do that. Mm -hmm. I think that's also a really important message. Like it's okay to reach for a respite. You do not have to hold the gaze of your pain and be like wallowing in the Mm -hmm. agony of it and the grief constantly. Like there is space for all of it though. You know, you can you can hold your grief and you can hold your gratitude for being here, Mm. for being alive, for the small things that you choose to be grateful for. You can hold space for joy. One doesn't cancel out the other. We're complex human beings and you deserve Mm. it as well after everything that you've been through. It's okay. It's not a disservice to the loved one that's, that's died. Yes, absolutely. I think there's a lot of guilt associated with quote unquote moving on and Mm. finding happiness and in partner loss I know that there can be judgment and a lot of questions about will you find someone else will you date will you be with other people again and for some people that's Mm. impossible to imagine for others it's a part of finding those moments of joy yes meet Mm. someone connect with someone it's not replacing the person that you've lost, but all of these complexities and the guilt and the the judgments that we place on ourselves and the perceived judgments we might be thinking there are from the people looking into our world can complicate all of this so much. So again, I guess that's about letting go of some of the the things that we, you know, the expectations perhaps that we set for ourselves about how we should be feeling, how we should be behaving, moving. There's one thing, navigating your grief behind closed doors and then Mm. navigating your grief in the outside world. I still feel that there's so much stigma and misunderstanding. And that's why, Yana, what you're doing with this podcast is just so important. Like this is a universal experience. If you Mm. haven't gone through it yet, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. You inevitably will, right? Mm. But you don't have to fear that. But I think accepting that this is inevitable will just allow for more conversations like we need to create more visibility around mm. grief because it's such a heavy thing to carry on your own. Yeah, it's mm. it's really hard. It, yeah, it's really hard to mm. navigate other people's expectations and judgment. Partner loss is definitely a... Uh, Yeah, it's a complicated one. (laughs) It's hard enough in itself wrapping your head around dating again and then worrying about what others are going to think. And of course, it doesn't take away the love that you have for your other partner, your late partner. Love is boundless, you know. You know, it's so funny because I worked at the coroner's court for a long time and I'm going to make a sweeping generalization here, but it is based on the people that I was seeing. The majority, the vast majority of men that suddenly lost their partners were repartnered within a year. And it's mm. just sort of a societal expectation that, oh, well, men move on quickly, move on, quote unquote. Men can't be alone. Men, especially of a certain generation, need to be with somebody. They can't be on their own. And then it's sort of, you know, more expected that a woman's going to take longer and take more time. And again, we're making these 
judgments and generalizations and it's completely individual and there shouldn't be any rules that we set for ourselves in any part of our lives, which we do, of course, all the time. And those are the things we need to kind of practice at letting go of. But I can't imagine losing your partner at such a young age and having to navigate all of that. Probably lots of it is all you having to figure it all out yourself. There's not like a right way to do anything. So you have to kind of battle with that internal stuff and then what's happening outside and around you. And you probably get messages from people around you would you like to find somebody again? And wouldn't it be nice for you to Mm. blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then maybe the others who might say, oh, you know, how could you ever replace him and blah, blah, blah. How do you manage that juggle? It's been so challenging to (sighs) say the least. And you also get, oh, what are the other really good ones? Oh, thank God you weren't married. Thank God you didn't have children. Oh Oh, yeah, as if that makes it any better. I'm not going to lie navigating solo parenthood on top of partner loss Mm. would present, you know, a whole other challenge unto itself. Mm. I'm not diminishing that at all, but yeah, it's still shit. And actually, I don't know if it's great losing them on the threshold of all of these incredible things that you were planning. I'd have much rather had another 30 years with Ben. And again, that's not to say anything is better or worse, but just, you know, let's like Mm. cut back on the (laughs) on the um at least yeah exactly no at least is ever helpful in grief it's been really hard because I guess it's not like a breakup it it, you are separated involuntarily by death and so the love is still there and I think that's something really important to drill home to people that haven't gone through loss and it, it doesn't just mean you know this is not specific to partner loss, but death ends a life. It doesn't end the relationship. You still have a relationship with your mum and it's normal to want to continue that. There's a concept called continuing bonds that was introduced a few decades ago and it encourages grievers to carry their loved ones with them. Like you don't have to detach Mm. from them. It's normal. It's not, it's not pathological. And yet it was presented that way at one point in the past. Mm. So it's been really hard carrying my love for Ben, carrying my grief and also trying to create space for someone new. It's hard. I don't want to divulge too much as I'm still Mm. (laughs) kind of figuring it all out. But one thing that I will say is that there is hope. Mm. You can find love. Love is boundless. It's not the same. Mm -hmm. It's different. Different isn't a bad thing. I was going to say, as you're saying that, it just reminds me of that saying that when you have one child, you know, there's this notion that I couldn't possibly love another one. And there's a saying somewhere that your heart just expands. It's a muscle Mm -hmm. and it grows to include another love in. And I imagine, I hope that it's the same for people that have lost partners, that you don't have to live an isolated, sad, longing existence that you can expand and include somebody, mm-hmm. maybe many people yeah, along the way. Yeah. yeah. And you deserve it. And and one thing that, you know, exploring the, the world of mediumship has enabled me to wrap my head around is that our loved ones don't take any of the earthly, bodily, ego stuff with them, mm-hmm. right? So Ben's not jealous. 
Mm. Ben's not, he's not suffering anymore. He's got his yeah. beautiful hair back. He's in the best shape of his life. They mm-hmm. get to take the best versions of themselves over there and there's no separation on the other side. So mm. he's not jealous. He just wants the best for me. You know, mm. He understands it from a different vantage point now. You don't need to feel guilty about opening your heart to love again. Mm. It's it's the least that you deserve, I think, when you've been through something like like we have you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Lottie, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and hours. Honestly, there's so much to all of this and we barely there's even so touched on, on any of it. It's just the cliff mm. notes. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. Well, I'll have to come on again. I'm going to get Definitely. you on my podcast. Oh, I would yeah. love that. And look, you really have, I think you by sharing so much of your story, I, you are just doing the world an incredible service. And I know that you're creating incredible things for people to read and your podcast. I can't wait to listen to that. And mm-hmm. I just know you're going to continue to do amazing things that are just going to keep helping to heal people who might be suffering and as you say, who will indeed one day be going through stuff like this because it will hit everybody. And I just can't wait to see what happens next for you. Thank you so much, lovely. Well, I'm looking forward to the day we can meet in person and collaborate. And thank you for doing what you're doing as well. It's just so important to have these conversations. And I really hope that anyone listening has found, you know, a little nugget that they can take away of some Mm. kind, whatever it is that that feels helpful to them. We've got to keep talking about this stuff because it's normal. More and more and more, you know, let's keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll lock in a date for you to to come on to Lemonade at some point. (laughs) Thank you. Well, speaking of, what is the best way for people to find you and to catch up with everything you're doing? So I hang out on Instagram. I can't deal with more platforms. I'm not on TikTok or anything like that. My Instagram handle is Lottie Bowser. That's L-O-T-T-E, no I, B-O-W-S-E-R. And yeah, watch out for my podcast, which is called Lemonade. That's coming out this Easter. And um, Yana will be a guest on it at some point. So (laughs) (laughs) can't wait. I can't wait either. And it's just, yeah, so much. And what a great title. I mean, I can take a guess at why it's called that well honestly when people used to say to me like how do you do it I'm just like I don't know like I'm just making lemonade because what else can you fucking do you know and um, I think that's a big part of my message is to just like gotta make the best of these shit situations and your life can be meaningful and purposeful and beautiful in the wake of hard things and I'm just so grateful for you taking the time to chat with me today so thank you and I've loved having you on my podcasting journey so far. Now, I've made something just for you. Living through these tumultuous times, we've all had a lot to contend with. We've had to pivot and adapt like never before. But what if we can't? What's stopping us from taking those leaps of faith? In my book, Embracing Change, I unpack some of the psychological barriers to change using anecdotes from my own personal life and professional experience as a therapist, as well as sharing some of the heartfelt and painful experiences of my well-known guests. We all have a story and we all have challenges to overcome. 
Embracing change is about finding the ways that we can adjust, transition and adapt as smoothly as possible. Embracing Change is available at all good bookstores at Kmart, Big W or online via Booktopia. If you prefer to listen to your books, you can hear me read it to you via audiobook available through Audible. I would love to hear your thoughts, so please let me know what you think at the days that follow or the Curious Life podcast on socials. And don't forget, as always, to leave a rating or review of the podcast.